According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are in the book of Philippians. Join me there, if you will. And we'll get our first look at verse 12. Verses 12 and following here this morning from Philippians chapter 1. Volume levels are good. Am I a little too loud? We all right? All right. A lot of times uh, when the pastor's gone and the guest speakers come in, then things get uh, boosted a bit. And then uh, when the loud mouth returns, then we have to back it off slightly for, for the listener comfort. All right, Philippians 1.12. I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel, The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. All right, so there's the section that we're going to outline and deal with, verses 12 through 18a, that we'll handle as uh, as a segment in... uh, in a separate outline. Before we do get started though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, making sure that we are filled with the Spirit and that we are humble under the authority of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for your grace and truth, thankful for your faithfulness, Father. Uh, faithfulness day by day, moment by moment, Father, we uh, call upon that faithfulness now to lead us into the paths of righteousness, to teach us from your eternal truth. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so as we work our way through, let me uh, remind each one of us what we're doing here in this chapter. The, uh, beyond the uh, opening salutation in verses 1 and 2, Philippians opens with a standard yet significant salutation of winning Paul's own apostolic office, yet spotlighting the overseer and deacon offices of every local church. And we took the time, actually spent more time on the salutation than we typically do because, yes, the apostolic office was missing, uh, but it did highlight the overseers and the deacons and the structure that we have in a local church, and I wanted to make sure that we were solid on that. The three remaining sections of chapter 1 can be titled with marvelous memory verses. And uh, there's several good memory verses throughout the book of Philippians. But here in chapter 1, we've got three that uh, really serve to title the three sections of the chapter. So in verses 3 through 11, we were centered on he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And uh, this is what we've just concluded prior to last week. And I think we've covered the details there. Uh, he who began a good work in you will perfect it, that God is not content with a beginning, that he makes a beginning. He is the, he's not just the alpha and the alpha, right? Jesus is the alpha and the omega. And even if you are perfect in your beginning, that's only a beginning. 
and uh, the perfection that comes after that beginning that takes you to the, uh, the conclusion that he has designed you for. And so uh, these aspects here, and this is what he's confident of in verse 6, persuaded that he who began a good work in you, that it's not us doing the work, it's God doing the work. And just as he perfectly did the beginning, he's going to perfectly do the concluding or the perfecting in this regard. And so those concepts, I hope, I hope we don't lose track of them and we want to keep them in mind because we're going to build upon them in this next section. We have uh, progress that's, that's being highlighted here in this next section. That when he says, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. That we recognize that God has designed the Christian way of life on that basis. That it's intended to be a progression. That we're intended to go somewhere with it and uh, not just sit there doing nothing with, uh, with the, the Christian way of life. The second section is what we're going to start here today, verses 12 through 18. It's called the occasion for writing section. Uh, it's kind of a label that gets put on a lot of epistles. Uh, it's very common uh, when someone writes a letter, very early in the letter, they tell you why they're writing, <laughs> you know? Um, and that's what we have here, the occasion for writing section. And it centers on my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. He wanted them to know that. It was his will that they would know that. And so when we talk about bulamai and all the principles with respect to a wish or a desire or a will, uh, he says here, I want you to know. It is his wish, it is his desire, it is the will of Paul that the Philippian believers gnosko, that they know his circumstances. And uh, we'll, I think there's some some uh, some aspects here that we're going to pay attention to because in many respects um, our circumstances are irrelevant uh, and then in other respects our circumstances are everything <laughs> okay and we want to know that we want to know uh, how do we look at our circumstances where it's no big deal and how do we look at our circumstances where it's everything and and uh, both can be true at the same time depends on whether we're looking at it with human eyes or God's eyes, human viewpoint or divine viewpoint, and how we can, in the mastery of our circumstances, be able to encourage others, right? Because we recognize that we're not slaves to our circumstances. And, and if through my example, what I'm going through, we can share those details, then uh, that, that becomes a venue for edification to other believers, all right? In some respects, this, this passage goes a long way towards validating testimonies, validating a, an illustration whereby a person shares their experiences, right? And, 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 and we'll have a note of caution with this because you can go overboard that way, right? You can totally throw out expository Bible teaching and just give an entire ministry over to testimonies and prayer and shares and, and just Christian chit-chat. And, and we're not doing that, okay? Bible does not sanction doing that. But at the same time, if you can go overboard that way, guess what? You can go overboard the other way as well and never share a testimony, never share a story, never illustrate with a circumstance or a detail of life. And when you go overboard that direction as well, I think you violate this, this text here. I think this passage here, because Paul says, I want you to know, brethren, my circumstances, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And the way things turn out, <laughs> we're going to have some fun with that. Because, well, what do you know? How does that happen? <laughs> okay, Well, that happens because God. Because God's the one that's in charge of our circumstances. Because He takes us in surprising places that we wouldn't expect. 
And I think he has fun doing so. I think he loves doing so. Like a father springing surprises on, their, on his children. I think God the Father loves to take us places and saying, watch this. <laughs> okay? Watch this. And it's not what you would expect. So, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And so when you can see the end from the beginning, we can see the outcome, we can see what God does with it, then with hindsight or with divine viewpoint perspective, then you can stop grumbling about the stuff you don't like. You can stop grumbling about circumstances you would rather not go through, right? Because you see, oh, I needed to go through that. Oh, that was a greater glory for Christ. And when I'm saying I don't want to experience this, I should rephrase that to say, oh, at that time I was desiring for a diminished glory for Jesus Christ. I repent, I confess, and I adjust my thinking more in conformity with God's thinking in, uh, in that respect. When we get past verse 18, or when we get to the second half of verse 18, uh, when he repeats the yes, I will rejoice statement, for I know that this will turn out, there it is again, turning out, for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And it goes on. The chapter concludes with application both for Paul himself and for the Philippians. He says to live as Christ and to die as gain. And this, uh, Paul is sharing this again in a, in, a, in a very personal way, saying I've learned this lesson myself. You can learn this lesson also right here, right now. You can learn it quicker than I did. Right? You can learn it without going to jail. You can learn it uh, by uh, applying the doctrine that's being taught in this book. And that's uh, verses 19 through 30, down through the end of the chapter. To live as Christ and to die as gain. To recognize that our sojourn on this earth is entirely about glorifying Jesus Christ. And that temporal life matters of life and death are secondary. <laughs> that uh, they are uh, uh, to be, not to be compared with the eternal weight of glory that is to be revealed. And uh, that's going to be a fun section to get to as well. Alright, so starting now with this section. My circumstances have turned out. Point one, Paul's occasion for writing is a personal testimony to Romans 8.28. He hasn't written Romans 8.28 yet, but he's, he's grasping the realities of it right here, right now. All things work together for the good. All right? And he's going to write that when he gets to Romans. He's going to write that when he gets, and, and very quickly after, I believe, after Philippians, when he's going to write 2 Thessalonians or 2 Corinthians and then Romans on his, uh, from Corinth. But he's learning this concept now. A personal testimony to Romans 8.28, all things work together for good. His circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And we have language here, adverbs that speak of greater, rather, in contrast. Uh, language that speaks of a surprise in things that you would not expect. And that when you can look at it with a hindsight or with a divine viewpoint perspective to say, oh wow, it's better that it was that way, right? Then you, then you can recognize that you are uh, in agreement with God on what's better and what's worse. Okay, And you might say, well, jail is not better. Freedom is better than jail. Not in this case, right? Because in this case, his imprisonment, his bonds have resulted in the greater progress of the gospel. And so in, in this instance, jail is better than freedom. Because better progress for the gospel is better than lesser progress for the gospel. 
See how that works? And so the divine viewpoint perspective sometimes makes uh, the opposite case from what human viewpoint would make. I think that's more common than not. And so we see it here. All right. I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances. And, uh, and so we have it. Let's remind ourselves that don't just assume you know what Romans 8.28 says. Let's look at it. Because what is the good? And uh, who is it promised to? All right, Romans 8.28. in a context, uh, a much larger context in development than we're going to take the time to deal with here this morning. But understand that it's centered on our position in Christ, who we are in Christ. Uh, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's how the chapter starts. And it it starts with no condemnation and ends with no separation. The whole chapter is about us in Christ. And so um, we have uh, this new position in a fallen world. We're groaning um, we're still, uh, uh, even though we are positionally in Christ, we're living in this fallen world that's uh, definitely not in Christ. And so there's suffering, there's conflict. Verse 18 says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So we have a position in Christ, and that's a reality, but it's a reality that's looking forward. What we have is a down po- a payment, a deposit. And we're looking forward. We haven't had the the total package yet. We still have a fallen body. We still have sin. We still live in this fallen world. And the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. We have a revealing as Jesus has a revealing. And, uh, And then the groaning that happens here. Verse 22, we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Not only this, but we groan. Verse 23, we also, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. And so, yes, we're saved. He who began a good work, we have eternal life. Our soul is saved, our spirit is made alive, but we still have this fallen body. We still live in a fallen world. We're groaning along with the creation that's groaning. And so this is, this is how the, the Christian way of life is designed. And in this process, all right, in this process, we encounter bad things. Not everything is good. We encounter bad things. But the blessing is to know that even those bad things are going to work together for good. It's headed in a progression. It's headed in a direction. It has a result. And so verse 24, and hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he already sees. <laughs> you know, that's, uh, I think it's genius on God's part to leave those things still future, to leave so much that's still in front of us so that we can have a joy set before us the same way that Jesus had a joy set before him, right? And so that's how he endured the cross, despised the shame. That's how we need to endure what we go through. When we take up our own cross and follow Him. Uh, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what He already sees. And this, uh, this, this is a principle. We'll see this again in Hebrews coming up. The, uh, for that which is seen and that which is not yet seen. But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. And He wants us to have that attitude, that attitude of eagerness. We're waiting, we're eager, we're looking, we're, we're, uh, 
walking by faith. Along with this comes prayer as the Holy Spirit prays with us, verses 26 through 27. And all of this then is summarized in verse 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for, and if you don't have a the in there, you need one. It's a, it's a definite article, for the good. All right, for the good. This is a part of God's plan. God has designed everything from Alpha and Omega for the good, for the maximum glorification of Jesus Christ. And that's what we should be looking for. To those who love God, to those who are called, or the called, according to His purpose. And so um, <laughs> right there we have, I think, the, the, uh, the lens or the criteria for how do I know if I'm looking at this with human viewpoint or divine viewpoint? Well, am I looking for God's purpose or my purpose? Am I looking for what I want to get out of it or what's God doing with this? Um, I think that's, that's all the difference in the world. That's the criteria right there in spelling out human viewpoint versus divine viewpoint. Called according to His purpose. Working together for the good. But what if the good is not my good? What if the good is my harm? What if the good is my imprisonment? My suffering? My uh, poor health? Okay? It's not my good, it's the good. And, and, and that bothers a lot of people, but the text is the text, and we, we deal with it for what it says. Not everything is good, but it works together for the good to those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. So this is what we're looking at here. Now what are these circumstances? Paul's circumstances are the things with respect to him. The things, okay? With respect to him. And uh, we're not going to do vocabulary on any of this because we'd spend all day long looking at ta, or looking at kai, or looking at kata, or looking at ameh. It's the things according to me. Ta, kata, ameh. The things with respect to me is better than according to, but the things with respect to me, the things that pertain to me, my things, my circumstances, because it's all about me. All of my circumstances are my circumstances. All your circumstances are your circumstances, all right? And in those circumstances, what do you have? Big deals to you, (laughs) right? Or big deals to me, or big deals to the person to whom they belong. The things with respect to Him. Coming back here to Philippians. I want you to know, brethren, that the things concerning me or my circumstances, the things concerning me with respect to me, my things um, have turned out, have become, have progressed, have resulted have made progress, okay, uh, for the greater progress of the gospel, the things with respect to me. And so this is where we, we identify that the objective truth of the Word of God gets applied subjectively by every believer. It's objective truth that gets applied subjectively to every believer. And so, yes, there is an objective promise But each one of us has to subjectively embrace it. Each one of us has to subjectively accept God's promise and and walk according to faith. I think that becomes important as well. And they are to be discussed. Look at this. He He doesn't want them to be ignorant. He wants them to know. 
He wants them to be aware of His business. See, the things concerning Him are their business also. Why would that be? If it's my business, if it's the things according to me, well then, butt out. None of your business, go away. Wait a minute. That's not how God designed the body. All things belong to you because you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. And so uh, I think we want to be more uh, aware of how the New Testament presents this, how we do bear one another's burdens. Okay, How do you do that if you don't know what they are? How do you love one another if you don't know them in, uh, in their Christian growth? Now this is something that we see repeatedly in Paul's prison epistles. In fact, Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, what do you notice about those? They're all prison epistles. Ephesians 6.21. I don't even have to flip a page, I just look across. But that you also may know about my circumstances. But that you also may know about the things according to me. Again, it's kata plus ameh. Butt out, it's none of your business. No, he says, how I am doing, there's that dreaded question, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister, he will make everything known to you. He will make everything known to you. Everything. What is it that the saints in Ephesus are not entitled to? What is it that they should not be aware of with respect to Paul's circumstances? Okay? Tychicus will make everything known. And so some things get put in letters. Some things are told verbally. But other believers are entitled to know these things. Other believers are entitled to know them for their encouragement, for their growth, and for their more effective prayers. I think that's significant as well. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know about us, and that he may comfort your hearts. It's going to be a blessing for them to learn about all of Paul's circumstances. It's going to be a comfort for them. Everything that he's going through. Because they're going to see that the grace of God is sustaining them through all these things. He's going to be completely transparent with them in all these circumstances. And it's going to be a blessing for them as not only as they read the epistle, but as Tychicus preaches, as Tychicus explains, as, uh, as these things are spoken of. This is like what we're dealing with here in Philippians. They're going to learn his circumstances and they're going to become more bold to preach the gospel. Oh, preaching the gospel can get you in jail? Let's do it. <laughs> All right? It's, it's not, ooh, I better back off. Ooh, I better be more careful. Ooh, look at that. We rock the boat and, and it stirs up trouble. Let's, let's back off a little bit. No, it's the opposite. It's the absolute opposite that we're going to see there. All right, and then Colossians. Colossians 4, 7. Ephesians and Colossians are in many ways sister epistles written at the same time and uh, with Tychicus as the courier for both. Makes it different than Philippians. Tychicus was not the, I believe it was going a different direction and a different courier. Um, Epaphroditus uh, going to Philippi. But uh, here's Tychicus again. Colossians 4, 7. As to all my affairs, (laughs) the things according to me. Okay, bad translation. As to all of my circumstances, the things according to me. Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, 
will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. Again, it's the same. We keep seeing it over and over again. The benefit to learning what it is that, that Paul's going through, what other believers are going through in other places. A lot of times it's the same stuff you're going through in your place. <laughs> but it's kind of good to know that, hey, guess what? It happens there too. That it helps to uh, keep um, the, 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 the grass is greener mentality from creeping in and thinking that, oh, if I just got out of here and went over there, then the, uh, the testing wouldn't be so bad. See. No, they got testing over there too. Guess what? And the same faithful God is sustaining them over there is the same faithful God that should be sustaining you here, but you're not walking by faith. So, you know, don't take your bad attitude somewhere else. Fix your attitude here. Different applications there. No, honestly, I had a man tell me one time why he was leaving Austin Bible Church. It's because the teaching was too deep, the conflict was too intense, and he wanted to go to a, a light and fluffy place where they didn't have so much conflict. I said, well, that means you want to go where you're not being fed and where you're not going to grow the way you're growing here. And he said, well, that's it. He admitted. He says, I'm not going to grow as much, but I don't want the conflict. Said, well, all right. I've never seen him since that day. I don't know what, where he is or what he's doing. But there it is. All right. And, and also, with him, Onesimus. Remember him? He's the runaway slave from the book of Philemon. Okay? Another sister letter. You've got Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. All written at the same time, all being carried by Tychicus. Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number, they will inform you about the whole situation here. And it's for their awareness. Okay? Anyway, if you have questions on that, we can pursue it. Um, we want to have a, an appropriate balance, an appropriate application. I'm not saying that there's nothing that should be private. Obviously there is. There are things that should be kept between you know, a husband and wife, the things that should be kept within a flock. There are things that are not shared with those that are outside. There's a balance to that. But I think you can go to an extreme where everything is held uh, top secret or, or higher, and, uh, and it's over-classified when it should be disseminated. It should be shared. And so to recognize which is which and, in, and what things do we share and why and how, uh, this is a text that's going to help us with that. It's going to help us to, to see that this is what's uh, designed to give that testimony, to testify to how the circumstances work together is, uh, is a blessing for those that can be encouraged by it. Uh, as far as the rest of this here in Colossians 4, I think... Um, yeah, there's just a, a lot of other uh, greetings. It helps us to tie together the prison epistles. helps us to uh, link a lot of Paul's traveling companions. Uh, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings. When do we see Paul and Aristarchus in a, in a jail together in the book of Acts? We don't, but it's part of Luke's omissions and Paul's admissions. Also Barnabas's cousin Mark, that's the John Mark fellow that, uh, that they divided over. You find out here that they were cousins. Also, Jesus called justice. Um, Epaphras, one of your bond servants. There's Luke, the beloved physician. That's how we know he's a doctor because of that verse there. Demas had not yet abandoned him, still with him, sending greetings in verse 14. 
Uh, greet the brethren who are in Laodicea, also Nympha, the church that is in her house. And then when this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. Where was that? And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. All right, more questions. <laughs> Teasing you with it here this morning. So Paul's circumstances are the things with respect to him. And so the things with respect to him, the things that are very personal, they are your tests. They are your conditions. They are your circumstances. And God's going to teach you lessons in all of them. And you have the blessing to then be able to share those with others, that they can learn the lessons that you're learning, the things that are uh, connected to you, what you're learning, how God turns things out, how they work together for good, how Christ is glorified, how ministry comes out of it. Every last bit of that, that's worth fellowship. That's worth sharing. Not grumbling over the, the stuff you don't like, but the production, the benefit, how all things work together for good. And we should see that it results in progress. Let me get back to Philippians here. Subpoint B, God is the true designer of the progressive movement. <laughs> how about that? So if you call yourself a progressive... Just be aware, you can take that label biblically, or you can take that label the wrong way, <laughs> all right, the way that in secular politics and, and the world would use it. Uh, it's, it's, it's backwards, it's upside down, it's anything but progressive. Not in God's book though, okay? The idea of prokope, uh, the idea of progress, of gaining ground, of achieving something, uh, it, it's, it's, uh, it's significant. It's a part of who we are in Christ. And even beyond that, it's who we are in humanity. God has designed us to be workers. God has designed us to achieve things. The Father achieves things. He's designed us to achieve things. It's not just about staying busy and doing stuff and not accomplishing anything. We're supposed to achieve. We're supposed to produce. We're supposed to advance. We're supposed to accumulate that's the nature of it. And that's how we uh, demonstrate God. That's what we do in creation. But most of all, in the body of Christ, that's what we do in the church age. <clears throat> so we'll discuss this as well. Twice here in Philippians 1 as well as 1 Timothy 4.15. We want progress to be evident, progress to be displayed, progress to be observed in, uh, in these things. So God is the true designer of the progressive movement. Okay, a little tongue-in-cheek there. I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out, have resulted, for the greater progress of the gospel. Achievement, accomplishment, results. Progress. The, the Greek word is prokope, P-R-O-K-O-P-E. Strong's number is 4297. There's only three uses, so it doesn't take long to look at them all. Doesn't take long to see the, the totality of their usages in the New Testament. Two of the three are right here, verse 12 and verse 25. Down later in the chapter. Um, convinced of this or persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. For your progress and joy in the faith. And so there's individual progress, there's corporate progress. Progress of the ministry, progress of, of, uh, of the gospel, progress in a lot of capacities, but there it is. All right, the, this is why Paul, when all is said and done, says, you know, 
I kind of think I'm not dying here in this jail. I kind of think I'm being persuaded that there's more work to be done and God's going to leave me here. And this is what he's finally persuaded of, even though he doesn't know which to ask for or which to, which to root for in, uh, in that way. So I know I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. And so they're going to benefit him, he's going to benefit them, and it's going to work together. If it doesn't, then Paul doesn't need to ever return to Philippi ever again. There may be another ministry that's going to come in there that's going to take them in that progress, see. And that's the doctrine we studied with, with 1 Corinthians, right? Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. That God will take different tools and put them in different places for their progress, and that's His good pleasure. He knows what He's doing in that. And if, uh, if a pastor's taken a flock as far as he's going to take them or as far as he can take them, what's Jesus going to do? Is he going to leave that guy there that can't take a, a flock any further? What's he going to do? Because the plan of God is about progress. It's about achievement. So these things uh, also, I think, are going to be fruitful for us to consider in, uh, in that regard. How about 1 Timothy 4 and verse 15? You're familiar with this. Progress that, uh, that a young pastor makes in his growth. What happens if uh, the pastor is the youngest guy in the church? Well, he can't teach them anything, okay? He needs to get out of there. No, he can. He's got a gift. He's got a ministry. God's going to work through him. And, uh, and so we see this here. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them. Uh, as we back up, verse 11. Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness. Let no one look down on your youthfulness. Again, human viewpoint, divine viewpoint. His biological age is one thing. How old is he in the Lord? How, uh, how intimate is he with Jesus Christ? How powerful is he in the Scriptures? Because he may be biologically young, but he might be spiritually old. But rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Timothy was an elder, spiritually speaking even though he was a youth, biologically speaking. Until I come, give attention to public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. See, he's not only is he an elder and he's able to shepherd and able to pastor a church, he's able to appoint other elders in the capacity there. He's got the guidance from, uh, from chapter 3 to do that. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you. I call this... Uh, Spiritual gift neglect, <laughs> right? And uh, if you don't use it, we talk about different things that are perishable skills. And uh, maybe you used to do something, used to know how to do something, used to have an aptitude for something, but it's been a while. So how rusty have you gotten? Okay? And in the exercise of your spiritual gift, if you're not using it, I think this, this text warns of its neglect. And um, you, don't, you can't lose a gift, of course. A gift and calling is without repentance. The Holy Spirit's still omnipotent. But uh, if you are out of practice and if you have not been pursuing it, then uh, it's described in this way, uh, with neglect, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the Presbyterian. That must have been fun. I think uh, in, the, uh, 
in the early church when <laughs> they didn't have the New Testament written yet, a lot of times the spiritual gift was identified when, when the hands were laid on, when an Old Testament believer crossed into the church. And an apostle would lay hands and welcome you into the body of Christ. You're not an Old Testament believer anymore. You're a New Testament believer now. And uh, in that process comes a prophetic utterance. You've got the gift of pastor-teacher. Okay? And they have the opportunity then to train that gift and, and uh, proceed forward. I can't imagine pastoring a church without a New Testament. Well, what did they do in those first few decades as the New Testament was being written? When all they had was the Old Testament, see? All right. Then it says, take pains with these things, be absorbed in them, so that your progress will be evident to all. Everyone has to watch that young pastor grow up. He's going to grow up and they're going to watch him do it. And they're going to watch him learn from his mistakes. Which means what? They're going to watch him make mistakes. <laughs> okay? And they're going to watch him learn from those mistakes. And they're not going to jump all over him when he makes a mistake. They're going to watch him grow in uh, those applications as well. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. This is what progress is about in a flock, in a local church. We know what form of salvation that is, right? One, two, or three? Two, obviously. Okay? It's not, it's not uh, believing in Jesus to receive eternal life. That's the first use of salvation. But it's deliverance from sin, deliverance from the sin temptations, deliverance from the, the failures and discouragements in the Christian walk. And in uh, many respects, that example that the shepherd sets for the flock goes a long way towards encouraging other believers in the flock to doing the same thing, to walk in by faith and using the Word of God and living it out. It, it, it should be with, uh, uh, as the example of the foremost, seeing the biggest, the biggest fool in the church have some kind of fruit, that you say, wow, if he can do that, I can do that. And you start to grow. See, Anyway, Paul said he was the first, the foremost, so that the rest could, uh, could be encouraged as well. So there's progress. God is the true designer of the progressive movement. And progress is what He's designed us for. We're supposed to be achieving. Running a race means there's achievement. It means there's ground that's covered. It means that you're advancing forward in the Christian walk. And we see that here as well. Now, what I want to spend the most of my time on here is the surprise. It's an adverb that says rather or more. There we go. The rather slash more adverb. The rather slash more adverb. It's malon in the Greek. I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out rather. It's not even brought into the English. It's just, I don't know, the, verse 12 needs to be translated better. Have turned out rather, have turned out more, have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And so rather than a diminished progress, it has turned out rather more for a greater progress. That's what we're dealing with here with the Malon adverb, with the rather than. Rather than what you might expect. Rather than a less progress. You would think, well, I've been in jail, I haven't done so much. I've been in jail, I haven't, I haven't trained so many pastors, haven't written so many books of the Bible, and he's done more. He's written more books of the Bible in his imprisonment. See, he's had more ministry. There have been more people getting saved. He's had 
audiences open to him that wouldn't have been open to him otherwise, like the Praetorian Guard. He wouldn't have been introduced to those guys had they not been his, uh, his guard, <laughs> had he not been assigned to that, to that prison facility. Okay? And so there's other doors that are open. And so the rather slash more adverb conveys a surprising opposite outcome to what human viewpoint might expect. It's like uh, in English, if we were to use the word, well, you know, actually, right? It, we're, we're conveying something that, that you might be expecting this, but actually turned out to be something else, okay? But rather turned out to be something else, right? Jacob got married and he, opened it, he lifted up the veil and rather than Rachel, it was Leah, Right? That's, that's the, the whole idea of rather than. You were expecting one thing, but then, wow, okay? You got what you weren't expecting. And, and that's, that's God's good pleasure. He is so marvelous in doing this again and again and again, showing us the rather opposite outcome. And so three examples from Genesis, from Esther, from 1 Thessalonians, three examples that should be very well known to all of us. And um, we can look at them. If, if they're not well known to you, then, then uh, we can expose you to them here this morning. But Genesis 50 and verse 20, this is, this is the Old Testament, Romans 8, 28. This is um, Joseph reminding his brothers <laughs> that God's in charge and that they intended you know, harm. They intended uh, one thing as they were mistreating him and shipping him off into slavery. But God, you had other purposes involved. And so uh, the whole background here to, to, uh, to this at the end of Genesis, Genesis 50 and verse 20, I think, um, and, there, and, and this chapter spans several, or this uh, story spans several chapters, but they went down to Egypt and they learned it was him and then they were in dread because, uh, because it was him and they had tried to kill him and they had sold him into slavery. And then he assured them, no, no, God, you know, God, God used it. I'm going to save my family here. But when, when uh, Israel dies, when their father dies, there is still a little part of them that had heard the doctrine back in chapter 47. They'd heard the doctrine previously and they'd accepted it previously. But now it's dredging itself back up again. You ever encounter that? You learned something in a previous year and you believed it. Uh, but now, wait a minute. Hmm. <laughs> how is that so um yeah in chapter let me find that earlier one just so we can add that to the to the slide here um chapter 47 and uh when he reveals himself to them uh chapter let's see 45 if i don't spot it real quickly then we'll just i'll find it before wednesday night but he couldn't control himself, and then he comes and he reveals himself in 45.3, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. And, and you know you're in a dysfunctional family when Joseph can't believe them and they can't believe him, okay? And, and he, he can't believe that, that Jacob's still alive. He can't believe that Benjamin's still alive, because he knows how they dealt with him. And... Um, so in verse 4, please come closer to me. They came closer. He said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. 
Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. That's the doctrine. That's it right there. You did what you did for your reasons, but God let it happen for His reasons. And and if you have the divine viewpoint perspective on that, you can embrace God's purpose and embrace God's reasons. And don't be angry with whoever for whatever, right? Because God is doing this. It's, It's a tremendous maturity on Joseph's part. And so there's the doctrine. He's teaching them this here in chapter 45. And they seem to accept it, but when we get to chapter 50, either they never did the whole time or it just it came back up again. Okay? And, and that's common, I think. I think it's common. You can have a victory at some point and then blow it again later. The test comes back again. and uh, Well, do I really believe this? So God sent me before you to preserve life, for the famine has been in the land these two years. There are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in, in the earth to keep you alive by great deliverance. So therefore it was not you who sent me here, but God. All right, And that's, that's the doctrine right there. We do the same thing with the crucifixion of Christ. Was it at the hand of the Jews, the hand of the Romans, or was it at the hand of God the Father that Jesus Christ was crucified by the predetermined will and foreknowledge of God? Okay? All of the above. <laughs> All right. And so they get this doctrine, they get these promises, they get, and I don't know how many, if they, if they fully embraced it or not. So when we get to chapter 50 now, Jacob dies. And uh, as Jacob dies, the brothers start getting nervous all over again. And, and it's like it, it creeps back up again. Well, now he only did that because dad was still around, right? Now that dad's gone, all bets are off. Now that Jacob's gone, we're, we're doomed that uh, Joseph was only nice to us because of, because of Jacob. And, um, and they're going to learn in chapter 50. No, that's not, uh, no worries. So verse 15 of chapter 50, when Joseph's brothers saw that the father was dead, they said, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? Okay? When, you know, there's a death in the family. It's amazing the things that get dredged up from years gone by. And you think, really? I thought that was settled a long time ago. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father charged us before he died. (laughs) This is probably just a lie. I don't think this is really true. But, oh yeah, did I tell you before dad died he said this? Yeah, sure he did. (laughs) Um, Thus you shall say to Joseph, please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. I think he wept for the same reason Jesus wept in John 11. He just saw a whole lot of unbelief. He saw a whole lot of out of control emotional people that should have known better. So his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants or your slaves. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid for am I in God's place? Vengeance is mine, I will repay. That's God. God has the judgment function of justice, not us. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. I taught you this back in chapter 45. Weren't you listening? You meant evil against me. God meant it for good. This is, this is, this is fundamental to the doctrine of permissive will. 
when God permits something. Satan attacked Job for Satan's reasons. God permitted it for God's reasons. Same thing here. The brothers attacked Joseph for their reasons. God permitted it for his reasons. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result. Look at that, progress, achievement, results. There's a purpose that God has to bring things to a point so that he can then take things to another point. And if you keep resisting God bringing you to this point, what are you doing? Because God wants you there. That's taking you to this next point. And, and it, to me, it's tragic when believers are running from their tests and running from their problems. They don't want to submit to this. They go, oh, it's too much. Oh, it's too hard. No, it's not. It's not nearly as hard as the one coming up. This is the one that's equipping you for the one coming up. <laughs> so you better get equipped with this one because that one's even worse. Bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. Stop being afraid. For I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And that's the, that's the blessing there. All right, The book of Esther, similar. Book of Esther. And again, it's a surprising twist. It's um, rather than uh, the Jews getting executed. All right, Esther, Job, Psalms. Has it been a while since you've been in Esther? They debated the canonicity of Esther even back in the early days. Interestingly enough, the, the, the Jews are the ones that debated it more so than the Christians, but Anyway, Esther 9 1. Uh, in, the, in the 12th month, that is the month of Dar, on the 13th day, when the king's command and edict were about to be executed, on the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them. Okay? And this is what the, the, the whole thing was about when, when Haman had this plot and when the decree was issued, and, and it was going to be uh, it was open season, hunting season on, on the Jews, right? Go and kill the Jews, and then there's no uh, plunder them. Take all their stuff. Anything goes. You can massacre any Jew you want and take what you want. And uh, you have government sanction, a uh, pogrom to, to uh, attack the Jewish people and plunder their possessions. And, um, well, that was the plan. How did it turn out? <laughs> what was the surprising con- uh, twist, the surprising outcome? When this was expected, on the other hand, that was the result. On the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, it was turned to the contrary so that the Jews themselves gained the mastery over those who hated them. And they were given the right of self-defense and they were able to arm themselves. And the, uh, the original command could not be undone. Any, any, any law of the, of the Medes and Persians when it's signed cannot be undone. Uh, so that law is still in effect. It's still open season on the Jews' day. But it's also, now there's another law that gets passed that says Jews can defend themselves and, and plunder you if you attack them. And God gave the victory. God gave the blessings to the Jewish people in this, in this, uh, in this thing. It's like the, the, the lion's den episode. The, the law was passed that uh, Daniel had to be thrown in the lion's den because the law couldn't be changed. But the next morning... The king said, okay. He was thrown in the lion's den. That sentence was executed. Here's a new law. <laughs> and then all those malicious accusers got thrown in too. Anyway, so here we have it here. So the Jews assembled 
in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. Now notice, they don't become active plunderers of innocent people. They become simply self-defense in defending themselves against those that are coming to them to bring them harm. That's what uh, the law of self-defense is about. That's what the principle of self-defense is about. So uh, on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand before them, for the dread of them had fallen on all the peoples. And so um, even the princes of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, those who were doing the king's business assisted the Jews because the dread of Mordecai had fallen on them. And so this, this day that was de- designated, the, all the bystanders, not only did they not actively attack the Jews, they recognized we want to take their side in this. We want to stand for their self-defense. Anyway, indeed Mordecai was great in the king's house and his fame spread throughout all the provinces for the man Mordecai became greater and greater. And this is the principle. Haman wanted to become greater and he's cast down. Mordecai was humble and he's lifted up. And uh, the thing here. Then um, you get down to verse 11. And uh, well, verse 5, the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying. They did what they pleased to to those who hated them. Again, it's self-defense. And um, the names that get mentioned there, the ten sons of Haman. And uh, verse 11, the day the number of those who were killed in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king. And then Haman gets hung on his own, on his own gallows. All right. Well, there's the, there's the story on that. First Thessalonians two two. Again, in a surprising twist. Divine viewpoint often has a surprising twist to human viewpoint. First Thessalonians two two. And this is the one that's most parallel to Philippians. Maybe I should have started with this one. This is the one that's most parallel to the example Paul taught in the Philippians. He said, my circumstances increased the, uh, the, the gospel and, and people watched me and they were more emboldened to preach Christ. And we have a very similar statement being made here in 1 Thessalonians 2.2. 2. He says... Um, You yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. We had conflict, we had imprisonment, this was the night of the Philippian jailer, we had uh, uh, difficulties and in conflict as ministers of the gospel, so as we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, it doesn't say that we backed down. It doesn't say that we, you know, we're more circumspect. We learned to not rock the boat so much. We learned to you know, go along and get along. Because you know, that's what we're told, isn't it? That we just want to compromise, that if we want to, we want to capitulate, if we just give in a little bit, then we can, you know, if we, if we become just a little worldly, they'll accept us more. And then, and then, and then, if they accept us more, if we can have friendship evangelism, then we'll have a chance to be able to give them the gospel. They're not going to listen to you. You're a capitulator. You don't stand for your values. You don't stand for what you believe in. It is not 
Compromise does not open more doors. Enduring the conflict opens more doors. They look at you and say, wow, that's a believer that's under conviction. That's someone that knows what he stands for. There's got to be truth in that. He's not backing down. So, our, uh, we uh, had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. If there's three carnal motivations for teaching or, or for speaking or for what you're doing, if there's a worldly approach to what you're doing, then uh, you can't explain uh, their boldness in the midst of this uh, affliction. If it's error, oh, well, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. I, I'll, I'll, I'm going to do that again. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Okay? Or if it's impurity, or if it's a lie. Do you think the disciples would have been martyred for a lie? Okay? Of course not. Who's going to die for a lie if they know it's a lie? When all they got to do is come clean and say, oh, no, 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 I'm sorry, I was, I was lying. It's not true. And, and you can wash your hands of it and you can try to save your neck. Not from error or impurity or way of deceit. And so they had more boldness. The more the angelic conflict hit, they had more boldness. And just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. It, it's genuine. They're serving God. Not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. And so it's a, it's a rather more, it's a contrast. You might be expecting this, but rather you get that. You might expect that my circumstances would result in a diminished uh, lack of progress for the gospel. You know, sorry, I haven't done much lately. I've been in jail. No. Man, you can't believe what the Lord has done since I've been in jail. And just exciting to say, wow, these are the circumstances. I wouldn't have picked it for myself, but boy, God put me there. And let me tell you, do you know what he's done because of that? And it's, it's something, it's a thrilling, it's to celebrate over. It's to laugh in. It's like, wow, can you believe I'm 90 years old and I'm about to have a baby? You know, and, and you'd think at 90, I'm not going to have any children, but guess what? God does these things. And it's an amazing thing. I, I can appreciate that. All right. Well, this uh, it's a good start. We've got a good start on this. We'll get more on this on Wednesday, Lord willing and rapture pending. Father, I thank you for the surprising twists. And I thank you for uh, when you might expect one thing and then, man, Father, you, you work amazing things. You accomplish the glory of your Son in and through us for your good pleasure. And it's a, it's a thrill, Father, to see what you do and how you do it. We want to share that. We want to testify to these things. We want, if we can, through our testimony, be an encouragement to others. If we can, in our testimony, cause others to look at things with divine viewpoint instead of human viewpoint, then, Father, we have an opportunity to illustrate in our circumstances what, uh, what your truth ultimately communicates. And I thank you for that. So, Father, um, open our eyes to these things that we might see the appropriate place for a, a testimony, the appropriate place for an illustration to complement the, the eternal doctrine from your word and uh, show us how these things together can be effective in uh, encouraging, in communicating, in edifying brothers and sisters in Christ. I do thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen. All right, this is our fellowship time. We can tell Scrabble stories.